This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Deep in the back of your mind, you've always had the feeling that there's something strange about reality. There is. Cyranoid. Death mushroom. Nanoparticle. Mechanical messiah. Fist punch evolution. On our award-winning science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we examine neurological quandaries, cosmic mysteries, evolutionary marvels, and our transhuman future. New episodes come out Tuesdays and Thursdays on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcast. Welcome to How Stuff Works Now. I'm your host, Lauren Vogelbaum, a researcher and writer here at How Stuff Works. Every week, I'm bringing you three stories from our team about the weird and wondrous advances we've seen in science, technology, and culture. This week, we look back at the life of the inflammatory evangelist cartoonist, Jack Chick. And, unrelated, we look forward to a potential future of tiny personal assistant robots crawling all over our clothes. Yes. But first, staff editor Christopher Hasiotis brings us another story from our freelance writer, Jessalyn Shields. Thank you, Jessalyn. This story is about water. It's pretty important to us humans, so why didn't we evolve the ability to smell it as well as other animals do? We humans have done pretty well for ourselves, evolutionarily speaking. Check out this sweet empire we've built that renders every other organism on Earth a second-class citizen. With our winning combo of dexterity, intellect, endurance, and a scrappy can-do attitude, we've managed to meet all of our material needs, and then some. But although humans are physiologically tricked out in a lot of ways, many other animals have evolved capabilities we don't have. For example, sniffing out sources of drinkable water. Now considering that relative to the rest of the animals, we humans have excessively high water requirements, doesn't it seem like it would be of great evolutionary advantage to be able to smell fresh water? So if dogs, elephants, and vultures seem to be able to smell water, why can't we? What's a fragile, thirsty, hairless primate lost in the wild to do? Before we get too far down this rabbit hole, let's be clear about two things. One, science has always characterized the human olfactory sense as being just okay. And although we might be able to differentiate between one trillion different individual odors, as new research out of Rockefeller University suggests, it's true that modern humans don't use our noses to understand the world to the same degree as other animals. 
and two, water is odorless. It's essential to almost every complex organism on Earth, but it's just a couple of hydrogen atoms stuck with covalent bonds onto an oxygen atom. There's nothing smelly going on there in terms of the component parts. So if we can't smell water itself, what can we smell? Let's take a second to turn to something American environmentalist Edward Abbey wrote in his 1968 memoir *Desert Solitaire: A Season in the Wilderness*. Abbey said, "Long enough in the desert, a man like other animals can learn to smell water, can learn at least the smell of things associated with water, the unique and heartening odor of the cottonwood tree, for example, which in the canyonlands is the tree of life." Because although plain H2O has no scent, chemically pure water also basically never even occurs in nature. You've got to make that stuff in a lab. So when other animals sniff out a potable water source, it's not really the water itself they're smelling. It might be a water-loving cottonwood tree, for example, or the other stuff in or around or otherwise associated with the presence of fresh water. Chemicals, bacteria, algae, plant matter, or minerals, for instance. Dr. Kara Hoover is an anthropologist at the University of Alaska Fairbanks who specializes in the evolution of human smell. She says that humans' class one olfactory receptor genes, which detect waterborne odors, are switched off, meaning that we, like all other terrestrial animals, can smell volatile compounds rather than water itself. So instead of using our noses, we use our brains. We're perfectly capable of detecting a nearby swimming pool when we smell chlorine, and we can pick up on the sulfuric odor of a hot spring, or that weird mineral-rich dead fish thing the oceans got going on. Another reason humans might not smell sources of water as well as other animals is because we need so much of it, and that's due to the way we regulate body temperature through sweat. Walking exclusively on two feet, an evolutionary change that happened between four and seven million years ago, came with some physiological shifts that drastically raised our water requirements. According to Dr. Hoover, one major shift as we evolved to be bipedal has to do with our ratio of eccrine to apocrine glands. Modern humans have way more eccrine glands than any other mammal. These are the glands that release water and, to a lesser extent, sodium from our bodies when we sweat. Shedding water through eccrine glands is less energetically costly than shedding nutrients through apocrine glands. Our shift in glands is one reason Dr. Hoover points out that humans will always beat a horse in a long-distance race as long as there's water available for us to drink. Hoover suggests that as our brains evolved. Our ancestors began to know where nearby water sources were, using cognitive maps of their home territory and regular travel routes, rather than needing to smell around for it each time anew. And as our cognitive abilities evolved, that meant being able to link visual and auditory clues to infer the presence of drinkable water rather than prove it with smell. Maybe that next watering hole, after all, could be found by just following an elephant around for a while. Who needs a good nose when you've got brains? Next up, senior writer Jonathan Strickland reports on a prototype of wearable devices that roam freely over your body, in exactly the way that your smartwatch and smartphone do not. Last week, engineers from MIT and Stanford demonstrated some new robots at the ACM User Interface Software and Technology Conference in Tokyo. They call the robots Rovables, and they say they can move freely on unmodified clothing. Yes, that's right. These robots can cling to your shirt and crawl around on you. 
They hold themselves in place with magnetic wheels. You wear one set of wheels under your shirt, and the robot snaps into place on the other side of the fabric. The rovable can then amble across your torso at a leisurely pace. After watching video of the bots in action, I'd have to say they look equally cute and creepy. The magnetic wheels mean the robots can move vertically across surfaces. They can travel up and down arms. And the robots are untethered. All of their power, computation, and communication systems are self-contained. The engineers hope to build rovables that have enough juice to power 30 minutes of movement or 8 hours of operation without movement. In the future, once the robot detects it is running low on power, it can navigate to a charging port. The engineers showed off robots with actuators capable of giving haptic feedback to a user, sort of like the way your phone vibrates when it gets a notification. Other robots snapped together to create an LED name tag, demonstrating the modular capabilities of the rovables. The engineers don't intend to market this generation of robots. Instead, the rovables are a proof of concept. They illustrate what might be possible with wearable robots in the future. Imagine that you have dozens of tiny robots on your clothing. Each robot is about a square centimeter in size and weighs so little that you don't even notice them. The robots can move across clothing, navigating autonomously to different areas of the body for different applications. For example, your day could start with a jog around the neighborhood. Your robots would position themselves to monitor your activity, heart rate, and respiratory status. After your run, you settle down to a cup of coffee and the robots assemble on your wrist, forming a screen that displays today's top headlines. At work, robots tap you on the shoulder to alert you that an upcoming meeting is about to begin. We're not there yet. The engineers have identified challenges we must overcome to create practical rovables. They include miniaturizing components, improving pathfinding and navigation capabilities, and extending battery life. But it could be our futures will involve being covered by tiny, helpful, supremely creepy robots. Yay? Finally this week, my fellow writer Christian Sager explores the life of Jack Chick, who passed away last weekend. He's a man who's infamous for offending everyone, from Catholics to Freemasons to Dungeons and Dragons players, and he did it all with comic books. Maybe you haven't heard of Jack Chick, but you've probably seen his work before. Often handed out on street corners, subways, and buses, they're cheaply printed fire and brimstone comics that criticize the immorality of rock music, role-playing games, Halloween, and even the religious beliefs of Catholics, Jews, Muslims, and Mormons. Called Chick Tracks, over 500 million copies of these pamphlets have been printed in more than 100 languages, making Chick the world's most published living author until now. According to the Los Angeles Times, Chick died on October 23, 2016, at the age of 92. Chick Tracks are basically morality plays in comic book format, combining traditional evangelism with conspiracy theories. Stories like Dark Dungeons contributed greatly to the satanic panic of the 1980s, claiming that Dungeons and Dragons led to witchcraft and suicide. Chick produced the comics out of his Rancho Cucamonga-based company, Chick Publications, for over five decades. Most followed a simple story formula. Someone sins, but when they face damnation in the pits of hell, they look for a possible redemption in Christianity. These kind of religious reform pamphlets were done in the tradition of writers like Jonathan Swift and Thomas Paine going back to the 1640s. Chick said the idea to use comics, which he referred to as his 
secret weapon came from a missionary radio broadcaster who told him that Chinese spies had observed American children's obsession with horror comics. This led to Beijing's government printing millions in cartoon propaganda to win their public over to communism. A shy man who feared public speaking, Chick hoped to use comics in the same manner, but to defeat the devil instead of bolstering the proletariat. Despite his enthusiasm for receiving hate mail, Chick himself acknowledged that many people wished him harm. So, he avoided the public, ran his business out of a P.O. box, barely did interviews, and never allowed himself to be photographed. Until now, some rumored Chick had already died, or possibly never existed in the first place and was just a pseudonym for multiple cartoonists. According to his biography on the Chick Publications website, he was born in Los Angeles in 1924, served in the Army, and was married after World War II. Unable to find a publisher for his first tracks, Chick self-published in 1961 using $800 he borrowed from a credit union. His comic's popularity with missionaries, collectors, and clergy led to him founding his own company in 1970. In a 2003 article for Los Angeles Magazine, Robert Ito reported that Chick's company made almost $3 million in sales that year to churches and youth groups. Chick once said he wanted his books to scare the hell out of you. In a posting on the Chick Tracks Facebook page, the company promised to continue with Chick's method, vision, and purpose. That's our show for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. And hey, uh, if you're listening on the day that this episode comes out, happy Halloween. All you horror fans, Google Monster Science and watch Robert Lamb's take on the evolutionary biology of movie monsters and a cameo from me as a ghostly girl. If you're not subscribed to this podcast yet, do that thing and send us links to anything you'd like to hear us cover. Plus, your favorite horror story or movie, because I plan to keep celebrating Halloween for the next, well, ever. You can send me an email at nowpodcast at howstuffworks.com. And, of course, for lots more stories like these, head on over to our home planet, now.howstuffworks.com. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.